Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. We're in a series, as Jessica mentioned, called Walk the Talk, about how to live out our faith, no matter what's going on around us. In fact, in a world in which it is becoming more of a challenge to live out our faith. And uh, this past week, in um, an Exploring Christianity journey group that I'm a part of on Wednesday nights, we were talking about trying to live for Christ and it, that it would be easier to just kind of get away from people and, and people who sin, who do stuff wrong, and, and live for him on our own. And yet, as we talked about that, I also remember thinking about folks who had, who had tried to do that all through history, and the problem is they could never escape their own personal struggles with sin. It reminded me that in this day and time, when it seems like fewer folks actually value the Christian lifestyle, and in fact, there are many who dismiss it, who ridicule it, whether it's in our schools or in our workplaces or even in our families, that though it might seem easier to, to withdraw, to leave it all behind, if you will, and go live in a commune somewhere or get into a holy huddle and just kind of stay there, that wouldn't solve my problems, and it would just keep me from being a witness for Jesus in our world today. And so I came across a quote this week that really, to me, spoke about the value of, of our witness. Um, I've not seen this quote before, but it really, uh, to me, seems to, to measure up to what Peter is trying to tell us from Emmanuel Suhard. It says, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. Whose life would not make sense if God wasn't real. I think that's really where a lot of what Peter's trying to point us to today in our passage that we're going to be looking at in 1 Peter. The gospel has never supposed to have been this kind of theoretical, philosophical puzzle that we're supposed to just sit around and talk about, nor is it something that is calling us to simply retreat out of the world and get away from it all and just try to live in our holy huddle. The gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ, really is countercultural, and it is only real, it only makes sense, it only works itself out when it intersects with real life. When it meets us in our places, in our world, in our workplaces, in our families, in our social settings, that's where it's intended to live. Not just simply in this building, but out in the world. And so this morning we're going to see if Peter can help us live in such a way that our lives won't make sense to others unless God is in fact real. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, that's in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament, or on your mobile device, you can go to the Version Bible app and go to the live page, or you can take out your notes that are in the bulletin, take them out, and uh, the scripture listing is there. There are a fair amount of scripture this morning, so not every scripture is actually spelled out, but all the ones I'll reference are there. Peter gives us here, as we start in the first couple of verses, um, a principle that kind of overviews the, the, the rest of the stuff we'll look at this morning uh, in, in a lot of areas of our lives. 
He begins in verse 11 saying, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. As we saw last week, Peter said we're called out of the darkness of the world around us into God's wonderful light. And then to be that light, to, to be the light of the world to those who need to see the wonder and power of God. As, as we seek to live then for Christ, to be that light, we're going to be different. Because a lot of the world is dark. We're, there's going to be differences. The, the word holy comes into play here. Uh, and that makes us aliens and strangers, unlike what necessarily goes on in the normal course of things in the world. And, and some folks then don't like it, they don't appreciate it, um, they don't approve of it, they think that, that religion or faith in God needs to be private, it needs to be pushed out of the, the social realms of the world, out of our relationships. It's something that we just do in, in our little prayer closet somewhere. Nothing could be further from the truth. And it's important that we not give in to the cultural values that reject God and the life he created us for. It's not easy. Uh, and in fact, Peter says that fighting sin in our lives often feels like there's a war going on in our souls as we're often tempted to go along, as we're often tempted to give in, as we're often tempted not to, to fall in line with what's going on around us, that it's easier to, to stop battling it and just live the way everybody else is doing it. If somebody's cutting corners at the workplace, well, I'll just do it too. If, if it's easy to, my friends tell me that about ways that they're cheating taxes or they're they're talking about people behind their backs. Uh, if somebody has hurt my feelings or said something about me, the easy thing is just for me to go along with it. You know, give back that which, what I've gotten. It can sometimes feel like that if we're trying to live for Christ, we're not making a difference. And in fact, it makes life harder. And it does often make life harder. I'm not going to kid you about that. But Peter tells us how we live really does matter. In fact, it matters more than we may realize. He says in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, when Peter uses the word pagan, all he simply means is someone who is not either Jewish or Christian. That's everybody else. It's a generic term there. And he says folks who don't follow Christ very likely will make fun of us and tell us we're wrong. In fact, some people want to, to strongly deny our, our right, even in this country, to express our faith and live it out. That, that they have all kinds of, there's all kinds of public discussion going on about that today. But Peter says, don't let that distract you. Instead, seek to live the way that honors God in, in all that we do. And, and to the, we do that, increasingly, folks will see the truth. They will see when we are loving that it makes a difference. They will see when we are kind that it makes a difference. They will see when we don't go along or we don't break some of the rules like everyone else is doing that while, yes, it may even create hiccups for them, in the long run, they see, they see value in it. He, he says, in effect, two wrongs don't make a right. If someone has done something to you, we don't answer it by doing something back to them. We don't battle evil with evil. In Romans, Paul wrote, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing more evil? No, by doing 
good. Peter proceeds then to show us what living good looks like in, in three common settings of his day where authority was a significant issue because a lot of the people he wrote were battling or, or struggling against authorities over them. And some of those authorities are still in place for you and me today. Some of them are not in the same way, and yet the issue of authority and how we deal with it still matters. So the first one has to do with how Christians interact with the civil authorities. And you might think here Peter is going to encourage civil disobedience, stuff like that. And, and it's not that it's never called for, but Peter urges Christ's followers generally to submit to the civil authorities. He says in the beginning in verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now, we always allow scripture to interpret scripture and we look at this from a broader sense. And what we know is that Peter understands that anarchy and chaos never served the cause of Christ. In fact, we see in the beginning that there was chaos over the waters and God created and brought uh, uh, structure to creation even. And so God has done that in social settings by establishing ruling authorities, essentially to, to ensure that, that crime is punished, to create an environment where people can live out their faith. The Apostle Paul wrote something similar to the Romans. He said, the authorities are God's servants, sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants, sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. And it's interesting here that, that neither Peter nor Paul seem to be saying that government has to be Christian for them as apostles, but that there does need to be some sense of justice in order to create a more level playing field among the peoples. In that setting then, the ethical, moral living of a follower of Jesus Christ would be seen as a, as a positive witness, and it would make the poor behavior of others stand out. And yes, they would react to that, and yes, there would be many who would not like that. But he says, for it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Peter is encouraging us to be respectful. And yet here and through other places in scripture, it's, it's, there are hints that there are limits to this especially when it interferes with our relationship with God and with others in, in our Christian journey. In fact, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God, that ultimately our highest loyalty is to Jesus Christ. And, and yet where it doesn't directly conflict or make that impossible to live out, the authorities are there as a, as a gift of God's to provide a sense of structure into our world. And so to follow Christ means to be essentially a little Christ, to, to be like him wherever he leads us. So again, it's not saying that anything goes. It's not saying that, that a, a cruel dictatorship that is, is killing its citizens is, is, is okay. But civil authorities operating rightly 
create a healthy social order, and they don't have they don't necessarily have to even fully embrace all of Christian values. All of that would certainly be a plus. And Peter set us up for next week when we'll look at what happens when giving to God does, in fact, when living for him and, and all does come into conflict with, quote-unquote, Caesar. Then Peter moves on to how Christians interact in a, the relationship of a slave and, and a master. And of course, in this country, I mean, there's a real sensitivity about this because of our horrible history. I mean, let's just be honest, our horrible history of enslaving millions of African Americans. There is is no justification for that. And yet, what we have to do is we have to stand back from our environment and go back and look at what is going on in the first century, where slavery was, in fact, very common, with estimates of, of... Upwards of 60 million slaves living within the Roman Empire. Um, The the Greek word that Peter uses in in this passage isn't the typical word for slave, but rather one that means household or domestic servant. And sometimes people, in fact, would sell themselves to be slaves to cover debts or things like that. It, it It might presume that slaves did just manual tasks, and some did, but many of them served as teachers, as musicians, as tutors, as doctors, and and secretaries. And their treatment varied widely from being treated harshly to being treated as a member of the family. And yet one overriding fact in all of this was that a slave, a servant, according to Roman law, was not a person. At least while they were enslaved, they were not considered a person but a thing, having no legal rights. And yet in the Christian community, Social barriers like slave and free were becoming less significant, less important. In some cases, in fact, it's been reported a slave would be the leader of a church and the slave's master would, in fact, be a member of that church. Callistus, one of the earliest bishops of Rome, a bishop over an area, was, in fact, a slave. The early church was made up of a high percentage of slaves, so what Peter had to say to them in their setting mattered, especially as it related to the proper response to hostility or, or mistreatment from those in power. Verse 18, he says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Now, I'll tell you, I mean, as I'm looking at this this week, I mean, I, I, I almost want to set some of this aside. It's, it's tempting to be offended by Peter that he doesn't come out and just say slavery is a sin. He doesn't just come out and say this needs to end. In fact, in, instead he encourages his enslaved readers to submit yourselves with all respect, even to masters, he says, who are harsh. And, and while in, in my gut I would say, God, why aren't we creating here a subversive attempt to overturn slavery? Peter, in the midst of this, uh, of speaking to a handful of churches in the northern part of what is modern-day Turkey, is not attempting to, to change that part of the social structure because he has something more important to talk about of changing people's hearts. And so he speaks to the very practical and daily matter of, okay, maybe this isn't a good situation, but, but we're in it. Now, how do we proceed? And, and, and think about it. How do you proceed 
if you have a boss who is overbearing, who's harsh, who's cruel, who's foul-mouthed, who who runs you down, but you need the job? How do you deal with a family member? You know, it, it it starts to show some pictures here that, that Peter isn't endorsing slavery, but here was a social institution that wasn't going to go away overnight. So how are Christians, and Christian slaves in particular, to live in the meantime? He wants them to live with a grace that endures, even when there is suffering, which isn't so different from where many Christians live Today, maybe in your school, there are people who hear you go to church or you miss something or you want to not stay late at the office and there's someone who has something to say about it because you're, you're living out your faith. We are facing increasing hostility just as People were in the time of Peter, whether slave or free, then or now. And so he says, how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? In other words, there's nothing good about that. You do wrong, there there should be. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Peter understands that sometimes there will be slaves who will suffer as they're doing good, as they're doing the right things, but they should not stop. Why? Because Christ himself suffered doing good, leaving every Christian, including slaves, the example of how to live. In spite of the the, the separations across society, what he was hoping and seeing and wanting to encourage is that Christian slaves and masters would be different. Sometimes God used a Christian slave to introduce Christ to his master and and creating a whole new dynamic, especially if they remained master and slave. But spiritually now, they were brothers and sisters in Christ, for in Christ there is neither slave nor free. It did not mean that the master necessarily set them free, but there was a new dynamic that included respect both ways, and even respect for authority. Paul wrote the Galatians to say, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Peter is calling his readers to see in Jesus a model for how those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ are to live as as suffering servants, which seems like a, a, a strange phrase to us, But it was mirrored in a passage in Isaiah 53 where that phrase first began to appear. It was first applied to the Jewish people, and yet Christians would look back. In fact, I suspect when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, and he pointed to how the the Messiah must suffer, I think he was probably pointing to this passage. And I I, I love the passage out of Isaiah and what is said here. We're not going to dig into that right now. It It is so powerful but we want to kind of stay on track with where Peter is going with this. And here's what he says, talking about Christ. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, 
You have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you've been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He said, hey guys, Christ, who did nothing wrong, suffered for our sins in his body on the cross. And Peter wants his readers to realize that suffering is gonna also be the story the truth for those who follow Jesus. Then or now, slave or master, male or female, no matter what the, the, the dividing line. Yet through Christ's death and resurrection, we, we learn to trust Christ and receive the forgiveness he won for us on the cross that heals us, that, that we recognize when we celebrate communion shortly. Through his suffering, we have, in some strange way, we've been redeemed. We have been bought back from sin so that sin no longer has to characterize our lives. It no longer has to be the thing that, that designates who we are and what we have always been. That somehow, just as God could use suffering to redeem us, God can use suffering in us for Christ to redeem others. To point others to a truth greater than you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. What goes around comes around. That there is grace and that there is a God. And, and the Christian knows that their, their suffering ultimately is not in vain, both in terms of, of their witness, but also that their lives are in the hands of the shepherd, of the, the overseer of their souls. And someday they, we, will be vindicated no matter what happens in this day and time. But Peter wants to move on to one more relationship where there were authority issues in that day and time, how Christians interact in the relationship of husband and wife, particularly when the wife comes to faith first. Now, we read earlier in Paul's letter to the Galatians that, that a lot of the social distinctions in the Christian faith between men and women were being muted in Christ. And that doesn't seem unusual to us today. And, and we, we affirm male and female equality. But we have to remember that Peter was writing to women in the first century. And that was not the case at all back then. Whether it was in Roman culture or even Jewish culture, women were essentially property. Property. A father or a husband could do virtually anything. They could even, for virtually no reason, they could have their, 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 their spouse killed. I mean, and nobody could do anything about it. They had legal rights, neither legal rights nor protection under the law. And, and when a woman got married, it essentially moved her from being under authority of her father to now being under authority of her husband. And that was it. And, and you just did what they said. It was assumed that a woman would have the faith of her husband, regardless of what she had grown up with. And that was a real issue now for some wives who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ while still married to a non-believer, to a pagan husband, because now she could be dismissed or worse for no reason. And so in that context, Peter understands the necessity of addressing husbands and especially wives. How do they proceed in this? He says, moving to chapter three, verse one, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
Notice, Peter is not telling the unbelieving, the, the wife to leave the unbelieving husband, which it would have been difficult to do legally anyway. He, he is, he's saying, though, that the wife's, the wife's behavior can, in fact, win over an unbelieving husband. And then he, he says specifically that behavior is purity and reverence. Purity and reverence. And not, not with words, that they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. In other words, godly living, holy living, reverence, caring, being unselfish. Those are the those were qualities that would stand out and make a difference and not nagging behaviors. Not then, not now. Don't work typically when a believer finds himself married to an unbeliever. I've listened through the years to to women who were married to non-believers and to men who were married to non-believers. In fact, hardly a week goes by in our prayer request list where there's not one or more people praying for their husband or their wife to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So you're out there. I know you're out there. Some of you are here with a husband or wife who doesn't get it yet, and thank God that, that you are here, that, that y'all are here together. But some of you are here, and you don't have that husband or wife here, and, and you may not know whether they will ever come, and you feel like, I prayed about it, and why hasn't things changed? Why aren't things different? And I've listened to people talk about praying sometimes, not for weeks or months, but years and decades and what Peter is saying here, and for many of you, this is, this is so heartbreaking because it's, it's so much a part of you, and it's a part you want to share with that person and a, and a part that they're not willing or ready yet to share. And what he says is that it is the Christ-like behavior that speaks loudest, not going on and on, not berating another person, about it. It's about living before them the gospel in such a way that it becomes attractive, in such a way that they cannot discount the reality that there must be a God. Because whether it's in a in a authoritarian position with government or between a slave and a master or between a husband and a wife or any other setting, when God is at work in our lives, it looks different. It's not the same. It's why Peter can call us to be holy, as God is holy. It is our witness. It's, it's what speaks loudest. And ultimately, there are a lot of people that they will punish you for it. They will put you down for it. They will talk behind your back about it. But ultimately, they cannot explain it. And let me tell you when, you, when you cannot explain grace, when you cannot explain someone being kind to you, when you cannot explain that they are genuine and generous and unselfish, I think every single one of us at some point in life starts to, has to start asking the why questions. 
has to start wrestling with that. Has to start coming. Maybe not as soon as you want. Maybe not in the time or place of your choosing. But Peter understands that godly behavior marks us as different from the world around us, even from some spouses. And it can really change their hearts. Now, let me add that the Apostle Paul spoke himself very directly to relationships where both husband and wife were Christians. And in that setting, he, he talked about mutual submission, uh, even as the husband and wife have different roles within the household. But here in those settings, and particularly in the first century, where the wife was essentially property, the, 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 the act of submission could be an endearing, powerful witness that could speak to the husband to demonstrate an attractiveness that goes beyond physical beauty, beyond the externals, to reveal the, the inner beauty of a redeemed soul. He talks about that. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, let me say that Peter here is not saying that outward adornment, if you will, is wrong. That's not his point. But what he is saying is that that's not where true beauty lies. He, he wants them to recognize, women and men, that true beauty is inside our soul and what comes through us and that true beauty can never be there if sin is at the heart of our being that only if Christ is at the heart of our being and is being displayed and worked out through the Holy Spirit living in us can a beauty and a winsomeness pervade our lives so that even if we are mistreated even if we're dismissed even in, in the workplace or in other settings people put us down or have nothing to do with us. He says there is a winsomeness in the holy life, the life lived for Christ that brings an inner beauty that is attractive. Now then Peter turns to the husband and he's used six verses to talk to the wife. He will only use one verse to speak to the husbands, which Maybe seems unfair, but again, considering the culture, and yet he's very, he's very direct with the husbands. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Now, that right there was huge. Treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It, it, it was highly likely that a Christian man's wife was also a Christian due to the, the social dynamics of that time. We already said that. And, and the truth is men were never in the kind of vulnerable position in first century Roman Empire that, that women were then. Never. But whether she was a Christian or not, Peter said the husband still had to respect her because he was a Christian. And that was unheard of in the first century. To respect someone regardless. 
And, and he says to be considerate, which literally translates living together according to knowledge. In other words, you live together knowing about each other and taking that into consideration in contrast to living together in thoughtlessness, not being concerned about the other one, just dismissing them, not paying any attention to them. It's a call by Peter to fully respect the, the wife's value as a person created by God, not a thing, not a piece of property, or anything like that, especially in light of women being weaker both physically but also in terms of their social rights. They had none. They were weak in that setting. Women today often may not be weak in that setting, but the, the point is still the same. By calling wives heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, Peter was elevating the status of women so that as Paul wrote in, in the Galatians passage that we read earlier, in Jesus Christ there is neither male nor female. We're all one. We're all equals. And that was not done. That was not talked about. That was not a part of the Roman culture or the Jewish culture. The full blessing, peace, and welfare that arise from Christian faith are shared by both husband and wife, which was radical in that day and time. And Peter says, get this, there are consequences for the Christian husband who is inattentive to his wife, failing to show her consideration, failing to honor her, failing to respect her, failing to do so, he says, get this, will hinder their prayers, will hinder the husband's prayers. The presence of ongoing sin in any person's life hinders our relationship with God. The Bible talks elsewhere about the danger of sin affecting our prayer life. And, and here, he's saying to treat wives as second class. And I would, I would expand it to say to treat anyone as second class is to sin against them and thereby hurt the husband's or any person's connection with God. Now, folk, this is how serious God takes this. That it is sin when you or I, even when they have done stuff to us, even when they have hurt us, even when they've said things about us, two wrongs don't make a right. Two wrongs don't make things better. They typically devolve down into chaos. So when we find ourselves in those settings where we have been wronged, and every one of us has, when we respond back in kind, when we hurt back, when we shout back, when we are ungracious, when we are hurtful, then just as the husband of the first century affected his relationship with God, it affects our relationship with God too. Just because we're right doesn't make it right to respond wrong. And this is huge. This is where Christians have the potential to live so radically different from the world around us where the world expects us to lash out. The world expects us to fight fire with fire. 
The world expects us to demean others, to get down in the mud with them. He says, when we don't, we are making a statement. We're living in such a way that suddenly they have to question, maybe there is a God. Because that's not normal. That's not the way people typically respond. From that statement then to husbands, but I think really to all of us, Paul wraps up what we're looking at this morning, coming back to speak to all the readers in a call for harmony then and unity. Because as Christ followers, we're all in this together. And, and our witness and our impact are stronger together and we help one another. When one of us is being attacked or being demeaned, to shoulder the burden with them. And so he gives some very specific commands for how to live as representatives of Christ in an increasingly hostile culture, quoting in part from Psalm 34. He says, beginning in verse 8, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For, and here he quotes from Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In a sense, everything he said throughout our text today can be applied to every follower of Jesus Christ, not, not just in our relationships with civil authorities or in a master-slave setting or between husbands and wives. Our unity and common witness in spite of adversity in all kinds of settings give power to the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus, who did not sin, became sin for our sakes. So the reality is you and I are called to wade into this sin-filled world to be redeeming presences amongst all. It's not easy. It's, It's why our unity and our harmony are so important. We need each other. We need that encouragement. When, when we're getting beat up, we need to have a time and a place where we can come together and, and know that I'm not the only one in this, that there are hundreds or thousands or millions with me. You ought to look around the room and say, here are people who are in this with me. We're in this together. It's not just me against the world. It's us together standing up for the cause of Christ wherever we may be. Jesus prayed for that unity. He said in John 17, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Our unity, especially in adversity, 
especially when we are shining the light of Christ and going against the norms, draws others to Christ. Jesus said in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. I want to remind you, living that way got Jesus noticed. In fact, he was so noticed, he was crucified for it. But it also impacted people because if you'll recall, on that day, that good Friday, as he hung on the cross and as people were reviling him, spitting on him, taunting him, as he hung there and he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't understand what they're doing. A Roman centurion was standing there watching it all. And he understood why people on a cross might yell out hurtful things to those who were hurting them. But what he could not understand is why a person hanging on the cross would forgive. He said, surely this must have been the Son of God. Emmanuel Suhard said, to be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda nor even in stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. As you walk out of here today in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, Will you live in such a way that people will look at you and they will not get you? They will not understand. In fact, they may attack you or ridicule you. But deep down, somewhere they know there is something about you that cannot be explained. In fact, it can only be explained by God. We share communion. We will do that in just a couple of minutes after this service as a sign of that unity, that we're in this together, that we all serve the same risen Lord and we come together to go out together into the world where we're more dispersed, where we're, we're among people that don't see it the same way, but we're called to continue to be that salt and light and to know that even as we sometimes suffer for that, maybe even under people who have authority over us, that our witness, our witness can ultimately confound them. In a, maybe a strange sort of way, you can maybe even take some joy in knowing you may cause them to lose sleep because they won't figure you out until they understand God. And that is your witness. That is your story to tell. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for us. As we live in a world that sometimes values you and sometimes doesn't. Some of us live in settings where it's easy to be a Christian, but some of us live in settings where it's very hard. Maybe even in our own families. Father, you give us a picture here 
of, of living for Jesus Christ, of allowing his spirit to work in us, and, and not to be mean or vindictive, not to get even or to answer evil with evil, but to be filled with grace and love, to not be selfish, but to be giving. Father, the world doesn't get that. So when we live that way, we will raise questions. Yes, we may suffer for that. But you tell us in your word that you will use that to speak into people's lives. And many will come to faith because of that witness of faithfulness in the midst of adversity. Help us to live that way, Father. It's hard. It's a challenge. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.